0: Hi, I'm Seth Roseman, I'm Jonathan Fuller, and welcome to No Experts Allowed, where we try to make the Bible less scary, more approachable, and a more consistent means of connecting with the divine.
1: Each week, Seth and I alternate between two roles. The non-expert takes a look at a specific Bible story and prepares for a conversation about it centered around two questions. What's the story and what's the point? Meanwhile, the storyteller joins
0: in the conversation, reacting to the story as they hear it, because the so-called experts aren't the only ones who can make meaning and sense of the Bible
1: as we read it together. So if you're new to or exploring Christian faith, if you've been to seminary like us, if you want to know more about the Bible, but don't want to hear another sermon, or if you're anywhere in between, this podcast is for you. Join us and let's tell a good story today. Seth, what's good?
0: I don't know how to respond to that.
1: That's okay. We just needed to just start the episode somehow. You doing okay?
0: I'm doing great. How are you?
1: I'm doing okay. Just give you and our eventual listeners a heads up. We've got some storms in Virginia tonight. So if this episode is suddenly cut short, And sounds like we're continuing on a different day because of a power outage. I guess that might happen. But more so, if you hear loud booming noises in the background, it's not me. And I don't think it will be anyone in the household. So just a disclaimer here up front. But Seth, I have a really important question to ask you.
0: I think I'm ready. Are you sure? No, to be honest.
1: (laughs) What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to be a boat by yourself in calm waters at night or on a boat with five people in a storm during the day?
0: I think I'd want to be in the boat with other people, even if it's during a storm. But man, I think just think a boat at night, especially if you're far out on a lake or at sea, it is pitch black out there. And it's hard... It's hard to see where the water is even if you're in the boat and it's calm. Like it's just like looking out at this like inky blackness.
1: Yeah, that is why I definitely would go for being with other people <laughs> during a storm during the day. Because I would be so scared the entire time at night. Just like the eerie quiet, not being able to see like, past the end of wherever you are, if even that far. Like, the ocean's kind of creepy anyway. It's just so vast and expansive, and then thinking about it at night, in total darkness, is just like an added layer of fear. So, I think, I think I'm with you. I've been trying to think about who my five people would be, because, like, I have people that I believe, like, yeah, I'd want to go through a storm with them. But then I think about how none of us have any knowledge about sailing or boats at all, and... Uh, I'm like, maybe I should just pick some people who know what they're doing so I can hopefully see these other people that I really love at at some point. But I'm not really sure. I I can't think of anyone that I'd want to put through that because I don't think I'd be very helpful in that situation. Just like if to pull ropes or paddle, I don't know. What kind of boats do we have?
0: Do you get seasick?
1: Not that I'm really aware of. I've not spent that much time on the water to know for sure, but in the situations when I have, it hasn't really been an issue.
0: I'm in the same boat. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry. I felt like I had to do it.
1: <laughs> oh man. Well, on that note, <laughs> there's some good some good nautical references by Jesus in our passage today. So would you go ahead and read this?
0: I'd love to. This is Matthew 16 verses 1 through 4. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. Why did you choose the NRSV for our reading today?
1: So we've talked about the NRSV, I think, a couple of times on our podcast already. And just as a quick reminder... The NRSV is focused primarily on translating the original languages of the text as close to the original word-for-word meaning as possible, and the NRSV is widely accepted, really the translation of choice among a lot of biblical scholars. Some of the things that I wanted to highlight and focus on today were specific to Jesus' language and some of those, kind of, again, more specific pieces of it. So I wanted to focus on the language rather than just the story or the ideas behind the language, which might be emphasized more in a translation like the CEB or something like that. So really it was just an interest in focusing on the language today. But as you read this language so lov- in such a lovely fashion, uh, what was, was there anything that stood out to you as particularly meaningful or noteworthy?
0: So I've heard this passage before, And the idea of the sign of Jonah always gets me because it asks, this generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And I always think, okay, I know about Jonah, but that seems like that's a lot earlier. Like that doesn't seem like that's the right generation, if that makes sense.
1: Hmm so what do you think like what do you think of or what do you know of the story of jonah that you think might connect to this passage
0: okay so in jonah i mean i always just think of kind of the broad outline of the book as as connecting that it's jonah is supposed to go to nineveh he doesn't he goes the opposite direction to tarsus and instead of going to nineveh he gets on the boat he's thrown off the boat in a storm and he's swallowed by a large fish, and then he spit up on the land, and then he eventually makes his way to Nineveh. So I always think, that I guess the sign that I have in my head is that he's swallowed by a fish, and then regurgitated. But that's Gross. kind of a strange, kind of a strange <laughs> sign. Right. And I don't know if the timeline makes sense.
1: Right. Well, and... I dug into this a little bit because it's one of the most notable pieces of this passage. That connection to Jonah being swallowed by a large fish or a whale, as it's often rendered in a lot of Christians' popular memory, is directly connected to the idea of Jesus' death and being dead for three days prior to his resurrection. And that's often where the connection goes. There's just generally some lack of clarity around this. I think in a lot of the, I don't have access to some like real technical commentaries, which I don't know would be very helpful for us. Overall, there's just a real lack of clarity around what this means, though. A lot of commentaries don't really get into it in depth. There were two main ideas of what this might have been referring to. The first one was what we already talked about, the parallelism between three days in the belly of the large fish and three days in the tomb for Jesus, kind of a foreshadowing of his death as the ultimate sign that this generation would seek for him to prove that he is who he says he is. The other one, though, that I hadn't heard of before that came primarily from one of our old professors, Dr. Michael Cosby, in his book Portraits of Jesus, he actually emphasizes the sign of Jonah as a connection to the city of Nineveh, which is a kind of a central city for Gentile or non-Jewish identity in the region where Jesus lived. So there is a connection point of a very similar passage a little bit earlier in this. It's back in Matthew chapter 12. It feels like a very similar exchange. And when asked for a sign, Jesus actually says that the people of Nineveh will judge the Pharisees and the scribes. And so these these two stories that are centered around people with religious authority of some kind coming to Jesus and demanding that he show them something about to prove himself, essentially, and he makes these two references, seems to be really connected to this idea of Jonah... Not just the story about the big fish, but about the fact that Jonah was a prophet to people beyond Israel. I don't want to say it's the only, because I don't know that for sure, but that's such a unique expression of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. So often prophets are sent to critique from within about the the people of Israel. But Jonah went to extend an invitation to a different people. And there's some dynamics at play there. You think about Matthew and Matthew primarily having a Jewish audience, and how the Jewish religious leaders were being criticized, which they are throughout the book of Matthew, but in these specific situations, talking about how not only are you going to be judged for what you're doing, but the people of God, that definition is going to be expanded to include people that we don't include right now. And there's kind of this shifting of the center of authority and of where the action is away from these people who are holding power at the time too. Mm-hmm. Now I go into all that detail. I don't think there's a clear answer about what the sign of Jonah really is, but it's clear that Jesus is so frustrated with the Pharisees continuing to ask him for a sign, for some way of proving himself. Does that any of that resonate with you at all?
0: Yeah, that was really helpful. I think in the first explanation where Jesus is in the the tomb for 3 days and Jonah is in the the belly of the fish for 3 days that helpfully gets rid of the the problem I have with the timetable. Hmm. Like it's not saying, "Oh, the sign of Jonah already happened," right? But it's like almost like a it's like a replay of that 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 generation will of course be there to see. Yeah. And then the second one, and you just touched on this is helpful to me because I think it, it's in keeping with Matthew's kind of larger idea and his larger audience. So both of those are really helpful, I think.
1: Um, I think it's really interesting to explore, too. Jonah is such a unique figure, like we were talking about, just in his, his journey, his, kind of his end destination, is really distinctive among the prophets of Israel, at least those that we know of from the biblical text. But at the same time, I think part of the reason I lean towards that second definition or idea about the sign of Jonah being ministry to the Gentiles and ministry that's kind of centered on the Gentiles is part of the larger narrative of even just this section of Matthew. We know that Matthew does not like the religious leaders, and in so many places... He's really critical. And so in this story specifically, it's almost such, it's just such stark contrast from the previous, even just two chapters, chapters 14 and 15, of all the things that Jesus does. And then in come the Sadducees, the Pharisees saying, hey, show us something else. When literally in just in chapters 14 and 15, Jesus had compassion on, he healed and fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, with five loaves and two fish. He walked on water in the middle of the storm. Just his cloak was enough to heal a bunch of people. He heals the persistent Canaanite woman's daughter in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And then, just before this passage, he had compassion on, healed, and fed a different crowd this time of 4,000 men plus the women and children who were with them With seven loaves and a few small fish so after all of that just before it I love how the author of Matthew constructed this to be like this is the moment where they are again asking for a sign and I think Jesus's frustration is understandable so you see how unique Matthew's take on this story even is he adds the whole nautical saying of basically red sky at night sailors delight red sky at morning sailors take warning to really hit home that the pharisees and sadducees really didn't get what was going on and that's a detail that's different from the same story in the gospel of mark at the same time mark says something about how this generation will not receive a sign And Matthew's gospel adds this specific detail about the sign of Jonah, which again, if we end up going with that idea that the sign of Jonah is this idea of ministry to the Gentiles, it is again a damning critique of the religious leaders and their failure to live out God's commission for the people of Israel to be a light to the nations. So, I don't know, I, I probably got a little too deep there into the synoptic problem and other other studies of the gospel, but I think this short passage shows us a lot, not only about the gospel of Matthew and some focuses, it also portrays Jesus as, like, really frustrated <laughs> and just like, how can you not get it after all this stuff I've been doing?
0: I loved when you went through that list of everything that Jesus has just done.
1: Yeah, And we, you know, obviously it's more of a literary function because it's like, this is the stuff that just came previously in the story, but it'd really be like, you know, imagine what I actually thought of in this story was uh, thinking about my mom when I was growing up and thinking about how, how many times I was such a spoiled eater and my mom had been working really hard to make our family a nice dinner, like been making everything from scratch And I come sit down and be like, ah, I don't want this. You never make anything good. (laughs) And her understandable frustration with my idiocy in saying those kinds of things because of all the things that led up to that very moment and how my question just completely denied the existence of all that work that had gone into all the things leading up to that very moment. That's the feeling I got while reading this.
0: I think that's a good analogy. So, so what do we have? We have Matthew feels the same way about the Pharisees and the Sadducees as Jonah feels about the Ninevites, and your mom feels the same way about this question as both of those other groups do. The Just same like, frustration. What? what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and totally understandably too. Like I want to be I want to be clear. I don't want to throw throw my mom under the bus again especially since she's probably one of our few listeners to this show. But is there anything else to you from the text that stands out?
0: I was thinking about how rarely I look at the weather. Like I use my, the app on my phone. I don't look at the sky. right? It's interesting to think about how that that's like one of the ways that the disciples were grounded in a way that I'm not. Which is really mm. interesting to think about i also think it just asks like kind of a, a scarier question like man do i know the times that i'm living in not yeah. weather wise but certainly that but otherwise like how are my eyes open to see what's happening like what am i missing yeah.
1: well i think that is a wonderful transition to conversation about what the point of this text is and really for me the anchoring question for this conversation is what's the stuff that commands our attention so much that we miss out where God is already at work around us? And I'm thinking (laughs) about that for for the Pharisees and the Sadducees in this story. I, I don't think it's any accident that these passages are constructed the way that they are. So their ignorance of all that Jesus was doing, of the ways that god was working in the midst of these people like listen to this this is back from matthew 15 just a few verses here that really sum up how profound jesus ministry was during these times Because after jesus left that place he passed along the sea of galilee and went up the mountain where he sat down great crowds came to him bringing with them the lame the maimed the blind the mute and many others they put them at his feet and he cured them that the whole crowd was amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. This is not just some isolated series of events. If anything, Jesus is garnering a following of people who are seeing the things that are happening, seeing the ways that Jesus is making God known among them, and still the Pharisees and Sadducees come up and say, "Hey." Prove to us that God is at work with, within you and among, among us now. Pay attention. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think this question of what commands our attention in the church is really important for us to be considering right now in this moment, in the midst of a persistent, devastating global pandemic in the midst of continued protests against white supremacy and police brutality and spaces where the church has the opportunity to make the work of God known. But what's the stuff that's keeping us from being in those conversations? What's the stuff that we consider we consider more urgent?
0: I'm wondering what the role of tradition is. Like I was thinking about What kind of traditions the sadducees and the pharisees like bring with them to this encounter but just the way that that the traditions some traditions can be good right we should hold on to them and they give us something to to connect to from the past that's been helpful for people for hundreds of thousands of years but traditions can also kind of be blinders for us like they can they can shape what we see and they can kind of block us from seeing certain things
1: yeah, when you're working with, I can't remember where this quote comes from other than remembering it in the class, but it's a fine line for tradition being the living faith of the dead or the dead faith of the living. And that, I, I think that's absolutely relevant to this question. It's like the way that we've done things commands our attention when God might be up to something else.
0: That's a wonderful quote by Yaroslav Pelikan.
1: That's right, that's right. Who that's has right. one of the
0: greatest okay. names of all time.
1: I'm so glad that you remember the name. Because it is a spectacular name, but also I am a uh, fan of attributing quotes to the people who actually said them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, and I think in, t- in addition to tradition, when we think about the church on a larger scale, and especially in the denominations that we're both connected to, you know, we've got these large-scale institutions that at some level are very concerned with self-preservation and again it's a fine line because the church at least has the potential to do some great work in the way that it's currently set up and structured and organized and it's not far between that and being so internally focused that we too become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who miss where God is already at work and miss the opportunities in our congregation and our community to jump into something new and exciting for the sake of preserving, not sustaining, but like preserving the things that we've had, those traditions, those buildings, those membership numbers that have become primary for us
0: yeah it's tempting I think anytime we have traditions to want to go back to them to think well that that was that was the best way this is I'm putting, putting this on the text I wonder if there isn't some of that in the Sadducees and the Pharisees question hmm. we have the best way who is this person to come and, and try and change it and shape it
1: And this line of thought, again, there's nothing new under the sun, but this question in particular came to me from some reflection after listening to an episode of another podcast called Reclaiming My Theology by Brandy Miller, uh, who's done some incredible work for this first season of her podcast, Reclaiming Theology from White Supremacy, and talking about some core ideals of particularly like American evangelical theology, which is the world that she's been immersed in for a long time. And this sense of urgency around certain things and real slowness and deliberateness around other things is a real hallmark of power-oriented structures that try to define what's important and what's not, rather than listening to the people with whom they're attempting to do ministry about what's actually important to that community. And and her reflection and the conversation on that episode was really profound, and it got me thinking about this passage in particular because it's it's those types of things, those things that we deem urgent or not, or whatever it is, in the power structures that we have that may distract us, again, from where the divine is already (laughs) stirring something up in our midst.
0: Should we give some tangible examples?
1: I guess so. <laughs> Anything coming to mind for you immediately? There's like a flood
0: of things where I'm thinking like like you talked about self self preservation. I mean I think that's that's at the root of so many of these problems. The church is afraid to to move forward in one way. I'll just give an example. Some churches are afraid to to welcome people who are LGBTQIA uh, because they're afraid of who they'll lose. Yeah. And to go with our passage, I think, if we're gonna read the signs of the times, there's a corresponding question, not only of who are we gonna lose, but who and what might we gain? Like, how can we read that too?
1: Yeah, and you mentioned it before, but there's so much comfort and security in leaning on what you already know, because it is an uncertain future for a community that depends on the finances of those with whom it gathers for its continued operation. There's there's a sense of obligation to what it already has, oftentimes at the expense of what may become. Yeah, that's, that's I think, especially in the midst of pandemic and seeing the ways that churches have been forced to adapt, and seeing the ways that some communities have really thrived by making some changes to how they do things, you begin to ask questions, you know, even of your own theology. Like, you know, for so long I've, I've understood gathering together, you know, especially for a meal around a table or some, something like that, one of the most important dynamics of christian faith and now it is literally dangerous for us to do that in each other's homes and it forces us to ask some new questions about some underlying assumptions behind a lot of what we're doing and really forcing us to reckon with what is core what is essential what is worth pursuing and finding alternatives to in the midst of all this and what can needs to fall to the side, at least for now. And so again, more tangibly with that, I'm thinking of some things that are more socially and politically engaged too. I know a lot of congregations have responded to the present moment by encouraging folks to register to vote and helping them do that and understanding what the process is gonna look like in their locality. And supporting folks in that effort to make sure that their voice is heard not to advocate for any particular candidate but to allow people to take that step in their own faith integration in their lives to help them think about what their opportunity to vote means for their community and what that means to work for the good of their city even if that good is not happening in the name of their church or of their religion And the resistance that so many people put up to that in the name of not being political is shocking to me. Um, Maybe I shouldn't be shocked by it, but it's still so startling that effort to engage more people in the conversation of how their lives and their communities are governed is so frowned upon by some folks who are relegating their faith and their religion just to a certain spot in their lives.
0: I think that's really the enduring challenge for the church is to, is not to just live it on Sunday, right? But it, Mm. man, sometimes it's amazing to me kind of the way that it gets bifurcated. Uh, Even in myself, sometimes I, I start wondering, oh, have I thought about this theologically? And frankly, sometimes the answer is no. I've, I've thought about it sociologically, politically, but I have not really applied anything theological to it. It says the seminarian, right?
1: Right. <laughs> when all you do is think theologically <laughs> some days. I think that's a good word to end on.
0: I think so, too. Can you pray for us?
1: I'd love to. Let's pray. Living one, you breathe together. You literally conspire with your people throughout all of your creation to stir up good trouble, to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and offer shelter to those who lack security. Help us to pay attention and not miss all the ways that you're at work in our midst mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hmm. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week?
0: Next week, we're talking about Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 6. But until then... Leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan.
1: Thanks for helping me tell it.